So thank you for joining us. Uh, we are joined by Alan Bruff, who is seasoned in the Canadian banking sector for the last 10 years and prior to that internationally. Um, thank you for joining us, Alan, on very short notice. Um, I, I was burning with some questions and I thought, who better to ask than Alan Bruff? You give us such straight answers on what's really going on. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. And I'll certainly bring whatever I can. These are interesting times that we're in, that's for sure. So let me ask you, what, what is going on? What do you see is going on in the banking sector right now? I, I've been worried about it for a while, as you know. Um, and we all started looking at what were the possible scenarios going back about a year or two ago, as, as this uh, agenda started to reveal itself. And we always considered how bad could things get and what would likely to happen. And I think I felt that, you know, you could see the path, but would it really happen? And we, we were always talking about worst case scenario. And I must say just recently in the last probably month or so, I do fear that we're getting closer to the, that sort of worst case scenario. And while I didn't really want to be negative and fear mongering, um, because I think that, that hope and confidence in the future is really important, but we are seeing a move towards a tightening of the banking sector against those who are not what I consider to be compliant. Um, and we're seeing worrying signs of people now being notified by their bank that, you know, maybe they're no longer um, desirable customers and that sort of thing. So I'm seeing sort of positive and negative in each of these, but there's certainly beginning to be a, a bit of a below the surface ramping up of the the use of the financial levers and the financial pressure against us. It's all about what tools can you use for compliance. And I think they, the, the financial banking tool is, is now being leveraged quite, quite significantly. So what are the stories that you're hearing? I'm certainly hearing some horror stories, but what are you hearing? Um, I've heard, and I know of a couple of people um, who have recently got, got letters from their bank um, basically saying that, you know, you're no longer the sort of client that we'd like to have with us. And if you can make arrangements, uh, it would be great if you could push off by whatever such and such a date happens to be. Um, and on the one hand, that's that's actually quite positive because I didn't expect that to happen. I thought they would just foreclose. So it's, it's encouraging that people are being given notice. But the question for those people is, where do you go? Mm -hmm. I've also known of um, another person uh, who I know firsthand who received a letter to say that they were just being informed that if another emergency is declared, they, they will be foreclosing on the mortgage that that person holds. Um, and, you know, it doesn't make any difference if an emergency is declared or not, because every bank in Canada or every mortgage agreement has in the fine print, um, it allows for the financial institute to foreclose at any time or to ask for the debt to be paid at any time. So mm -hmm. again, I'm surprised that there was a letter issued for that, which is, which is interesting. But it does just heighten the pressure and the fear of those people who are receiving those. Another worrying sign is that one of the people who received a letter to say, you know, you need to move your, your banking, um, their wife and kids also received similar letters to say, although, um, well, basically, we just want to warn you that this person is no longer a desirable customer of ours, and we would encourage you to separate your banking affairs from them. 
um, which which is interesting. So it's just really the ramping up of of targeted pressure and. Where this is really coming from, I'm not sure. It could be part of uh, FinTrack, um, who we know were, were behind the, the seizing of accounts soon after uh, the Ottawa situation. Whether that's the case or not, I'm actually not sure, because I don't know if FinTrack would, and having been in the banking sector, FinTrack generally don't warn people that they're moving against them. That's, you know, they, they're very careful not to arouse suspicion so that they can gather evidence and then... Um, make a move against a client which they deem to be suspicious in terms of proceeds of crime or uh, financing of terrorism, etc. which I guess the freedom movement in Canada would now fall into that category. So who, if it's not FinTrack, where else would this intel be coming? I mean, I know that they circulated a list of all the donors to the trucking convoy that was a public document that was out in the public domain yeah was that done was that orchestrated by the government and now they're using that list and starting to act against those people that they deem to be the enemy it's a good question that you ask because again my experience with fintrack is that they're not going to give warning and that's why i'm a little confused about the fact that there is warning coming from certain um, of the the large charter and commercial banks which makes me think it might be originated from the bank themselves, but the, generally banks don't have large investigative um, departments. You know, so it might have come to their attention that a certain number of people are involved in the freedom movement or in being reasonably outspoken against it, and maybe that's that's flagged them. It could be FinTrack that are doing it and saying these are questionable accounts, and we would recommend that you get rid of them. That could be the case. Um, unfortunately, I can't really for sure answer one way or the other, but it's not typical of FinTrack to give to give notification. And when you're dealing with, with potential criminals or potential terrorist organizations, you would never want to give notice around that. But I think there's also an understanding that the freedom movement is not at that level of danger to to society, which which in itself might be an interesting revelation that they are now giving notice. But I cannot say for one way or the other. It's just the logic and the historic way of uh, moving against potential account uh, or suspicious mm -hmm. accounts is, is mm -hmm. different this time, mm -hmm. which makes me think maybe it is the bank or is it under under direction. It's it's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. But either way. I mean, even if you just give out a bunch of uh, letters to people to say, by the way, your mortgage is now being put under the microscope and your account needs to move. If you're wanting to intimidate a group of people, that's a very good way of intimidating them because you and I are talking about this right now. There's a whole bunch of people listening to our conversation. Everybody's going to be a little bit nervous after that. So we're maybe perpetuating and, and actually you know, delivering on the intent, perhaps, you know, it, this is really when it, what comes down to the basis of terrorism. It's not the act and the violence, it's the fear of the act and the violence. Mm -hmm. And so this, this in itself could, could constitute an act of terrorism just by terrorizing people that they're about to have their life savings taken away or their home or whatever it happens to be, which is why I think that we need to realize that this is an intimidatory tactic and that, um, we need to keep going and that we need to keep uh, conviction of being on the side of right. Um, and that is important because this could well be a sign of desperation. You know, it depends again, how you read into these things. If it's a sign of desperation, 
and I apologize for the cat, um, that, um, that could be good news for us because maybe we're getting towards the end game and, and that's not entirely a bad thing. <laughs> um, well, so what would you advise people to do who are active in the movement for freedom? Well, how can we protect ourselves? I, I think, uh, as we as we discussed last time, it's important that you hold as little balance in your, your bank accounts as possible, even if you uh, can find a bank that takes you, if you have to move, if you've been asked to move from one of the big commercial banks. I would always recommend try and find a locally owned, um, locally based credit union. Mm -hmm. um, and although they're still under the jurisdiction of FinTrack, um, they will be a little bit more leery about... Mm -hmm foreclosing their own member owners accounts mm -hmm. and you also want to look for a um, credit union that has as little government or municipal business as possible mm -hmm. because then they're not beholden to trying to keep that that account and that seems to be a big thing at the moment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the um, smaller so institutions are preferable uh, what about with real estate taking a tumble right now are you concerned that some of the banks might start to foreclose on people do you think, think that's a real possibility? I think it is a real possibility. And I think that there's going to be uh, potentially a snowball effect in that um, with this threat of or the, the leveraging of people's mortgage debt um, over them, I think people who can are going to think about, well, do we really want to keep the mortgage or should we try and sell? Mm -hmm. And I think that there will be a move to start selling. And I think that that combined with the increase in interest rates at the moment could trigger um, a sort of cascade effect that would people would be keen to sell at a low cost, especially if they've got a deadline to clear their mortgage with their financial institute. But at the moment, buyers are really leery about the fact that the interest rate's going up. So if we do go from two and a half, three percent on a mortgage, to maybe 10 or 15, as we had a, a couple of decades ago, which proves that it is possible to get to that. Few people will be able to afford their, their mortgages. And so I think that's going to spark quite a lot of fear when there's more inventory going on to the housing market and the, the interest rate is going up. And that'll just make people more desperate to sell. And the tragedy will be that some people will need to sell uh, below the amount that they owe the bank. And the, the banks will keep... I mean, that debt will remain, which is concerning. Mm -hmm. Going back to it, in terms of the recommendation for what people should do, if you find one of these smaller institutes, I would always recommend holding a minimum balance at them, if you can, and only use your accounts for electronic transfers. So even if you have a bunch of cash at home or whatever it happens to be, only... Um, deposit that when you need to make electronic payments. That's really what I would use bank accounts now for, for the convenience of electronic payments. Mm -hmm. um, and then look at assets like we've spoken before, gold, silver, that sort of thing. It's always difficult, like, what do you do with it? Because you don't want to have a whole bunch of cash or gold and silver in the house necessarily. But it might be an idea to open a, a range of different accounts and have a small balance with all of them and just move that money between them as they get get shut down so it is going to require a uh, different thinking that we're not used to we've never had this sort of insecurity around the banking sector before mm -hmm. so we are going to have to be fairly adaptive and we're going to have to think about well, what do we actually need the 
the um, account for. And mainly, I think it's going to be electronic payments. You yes. know, we're not going to be affording skip the dishes, but you know, you are going to have to make a whole bunch of other payments, like even utility payments are all done online now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I worry for some people that get this letter from a bank saying we won't work with you anymore. How do you find someone else who will take you on? Because it feels as though they're all in the same club. And if one um, has acted against you, maybe they all got the same memo saying that this individual is deemed, uh, you know, and I think uh, that und- uh, an undesirable client. Yeah, and that could be the case. Um, we haven't we haven't seen this play out long enough to actually know if that's the case. And I think there's always a lot of care done. What I've seen recently around liability. So, if um, each individual bank basically just says, look, we really don't want your business and off you go. Nobody can be held responsible for foreclosing on you and, and, and ruining you, but you've been set up for failure. Um, but there's no, no one person or no one institute that you know seizes your account, steals all your money, mm. and that's a big problem. And then obviously, legally, you would go after them. But if no bank is prepared to take your business, that becomes a much more tricky situation. And I so think that... This- this may be a strategy that they're utilizing then, that it they will work. all work in concert. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is rather than foreclosing, they're yeah. asking you to take your business elsewhere and there is nowhere else to go. And it's, it's typical of what we've seen with things like the mandates where the government can quite legitimately say, look, we, we didn't force this. It was your employer or if it was somebody else or whatever. You know, it's all about um, doing it in such a way that they that there's plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. And I think that that might be what we're seeing now. But again, I don't want to strike fear and panic. I just think that what we're going to have to do is, is step back and think, well, what happened 100 years ago when you know very few people had, had bank accounts? And how did they build the economy, which has resulted in the vibrant economy that Canada had up, up until a couple of years ago? You know, mm-hmm. We can do that again. Um, it does mean, though, that we're going to have to almost separate ourselves from the current system and establish our own system, um, which could we, in the short term, could be based on barter, it could be based on crypto, who knows? But mm-hmm. it's likely we're going to have to look at something like that. But 15% of the population of Canada, 6 million people, as I've said before, that is plenty enough people to come up with a viable alternative system. And I'm quite sure people are very innovative. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of innovative development over the next 6, 12, 18 months. There might be some rough patches between now and then as these new systems come into play, but we'll get there in the end. And we will, that'll be the foundation of, a, of an entirely better system. So, so I think when we the, oh, sorry, the go pain. ahead. I was going to say, we just need to almost suffer the pain of change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the digital identity is being rolled out in the fall. We've heard that out of Ontario, they're bringing it in. I'm assuming the digital identity is going to encompass a lot of different aspects of our life, including our banking. It could be, you know, so our our access to finances. It will probably be our vaccine status. It could be our ability to access the internet. All of these things will be touched upon. So when, when the digital identity is or ID is launched, do you think at that point the unvaccinated may all have difficulty accessing their bank accounts or all be asked to move on. I, I believe so. I think that, again, that goes to sort of the worst case scenario that we were talking about 18 months, 
12 months ago, you know, when, when this started to become apparent that, that that was the worst case scenario. And again, I don't think many people really were in a position to embrace that as possible reality. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, we can talk about, you know, terrible, terrible things, but whether it'll actually happen or not, I think deep down, we always, you know, hope that our pensions will be fine and we'll have a, you know, lovely time and it'll all be great because things have been easy for so long. It's hard to get out of the mindset of the security of things like our pensions and that, and that sort of thing. And I think that, but I do expect that with a digital ID, all of your, your status will be disclosed. And, you know, it's been clearly said that our lives will become difficult until we start to comply. And I think that the end game really would then be, again, going to worst case scenario, is that if you don't want to participate in the system and participate in the digital ID, then you can't participate in any of the system. You can't pick and choose and take, well, like I want the luxuries, like the utilities and that sort of thing, but I don't want your digital ID. And therefore, you know, if I don't have to fly, well, that's fine, but I'm going to take the rest of the stuff. I think it's going to be all or nothing. And Mm -hmm. I think that the decision that we're going to have to make is, and we need to make it quickly, are we going to stand or are we going to kneel? Because if we're going to stand, then we need to stand independently. And that might mean no electricity, no water, no internet, no mobile phone, which becomes difficult for people like myself. My my mother lives outside of the country. I can't travel to see her. Likely, I wouldn't I won't be able to ever see her again. And if I don't have the internet, I can't even have Skype calls with her or whatever it happens to be. And I think it's those are the sort of decisions. Now, I know that I've gone beyond the point. I, I can't take the, the vaccine and I'll never consider it, no matter what the pain is. But by standing, then we can make this end quicker. But if you're going to kneel at some point, best you kneel now because it'll save you the pain. But I think the long-term pain of that is going to be a lot worse. So I wouldn't... I wouldn't recommend people consider that. We know it's going to be painful, but we will come out of this with the opportunity to build a better world. And that actually, I think, is our, the, the reason why we have. This is the great opportunity that our generation have, that we have to change things for the better once and for all. And we just have to face the darkness, go through the storm, and it'll be great on the other side. How long that'll take, I don't know. I mean, I don't like to talk in geological time. But I think in in our lifetime, we will see the end of this and we will start the rebuilding process. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think, I think when it, when it ends rather like the, the uh, Iron Curtain, when that came down, it came down real quick. And I think that we need to keep looking for that, but it's going to be, it's going to be challenging because I think the digital ID will encompass everything. And I think. I, I, I like, I like your message. It's the same message I've been saying to my clients. This is not, you can't dip your toe, your toe into the world of the digital ID. You're in or you're out and stand firm in your conviction. And I agree with you. We will expedite the end of this nonsense if we all stand firm and say, we're not going to cooperate with this. We will not comply. It's almost like saying, I will not be branded with a QR code. I am not a resource, I'm an individual and I have autonomy and freedom, but I think it's going to be, this is the ultimate test that we have before us. It's the ultimate um, decision that we need to make. And there is no part way. You either say yes or no, there is no gray area. Uh, Because once you dip into that world of having a digital ID, you are owned. 
and controlled. And I agree with you. It's absolutely imperative that we all decide, no, we will not comply. And quickly right now, I'm advising people, uh, (laughs) clear your debt um, so that your exposure is limited or nil. Mm -hmm. Get your assets out of Canada as best you can. Any extra assets that would normally be sitting in a bank or in RSPs in pension accounts, get them out get them secured into hard assets, which precious metals, and I say hold them in vaults outside yeah. of Canada in, yeah, in, in, uh, in areas where they are not jurisdictions that do not report to Canada. So yeah. I think it's very important that we have our assets held out outside of the country as much as possible to minimize the damage. I agree. And I think that if, if people can afford to do that, I think that's definitely the way to go. Um, what I've done is I've sold my house. And for the last six months or so, I've been reasonably mobile, taking a short-term rental at the moment, um, and really then thinking where to go. Do I then put the money I made in the house, buy an RV, and we literally become that mobile? And I think that those are the things we're going to have to think of, because mm-hmm. um, I think I form part of the majority of the population who prior to 2020 were essentially living paycheck to paycheck. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have that that financial backing to be able to have a choice because um, financial backing does give you freedom of choice. And a lot of people don't really have that. But again, I think that we need to minimize your debt. Absolutely. Try and do that as much as you can. And it's better in the position that I'm in now to be reasonably poor, but not have debt, because then at least I'm not going to be leveraged or sort of held to ransom over debt repayment. Um, and then we try and and push through. And I think it it will be uncomfortable, but but as I say, I think that we'll make it out the other side. Absolutely. Um, and put what money you've got into things like, I mean, even if it's just food, I mean, if you think about people who invested heavily in things like baby formula, they would probably be making a fortune at this stage. Mm -hmm. You just don't know what's going to be short, but we know that a lot of things are going to be short. So, Mm -hmm. you know, stock up and, and button down the hatches is probably the way. Absolutely. And, and have your community, uh, you, you know, who your tribe is and, you know, there's tremendous comfort in that of knowing who can, you know, who's there for you. Uh, uh, One other, maybe last question is corporations. Would you advise people move uh, assets or like a home into a corporation? Is that less likely to be targeted uh, as an enemy, so to speak? Might that give you an extra layer of protection? I think it probably would because it it gives a degree of anonymity as to who's behind it. But even so, corporations, you know, directors are listed and all all sorts of things. One of the the options that I think is coming to the fore at the moment, I've heard of several people talking about it and and looking into it, is those that have large amounts of money in in the bank who are like-minded, if I could say, um, are considering taking their money out of the bank or out of uh, investments and buying somebody's home for them. And you have a private deal where you pay them at the bank rate, but you know that that person is probably not going to foreclose on you. Mm. And I think there's quite a lot of interest and a growing sort of sub-market around that sort of transactional activity where, you know, it it helps the the person with with the cash in terms of it's reducing their vulnerability with money being in the bank. Mm -hmm. And it's a private agreement. You just 
you know, come come to your own deal. And I know this is something that uh, Catherine Austin Fitz has been speaking about for quite a few years, actually, saying invest in essentially the freedom movement, but keep the money in the family. Like if your kids want a mortgage, then if you can afford it, you become the bank, you buy the place for them, but make it a formal arrangement. You know, they need to repay it as they would with the bank, um, because this is just, you know, all part of the lessons of becoming adult. But at least in, in the current situation, people won't be foreclosed by, by a private lender. And I think that when quite a lot of people are looking at setting up communities and that sort of thing, but these properties are, are expensive, three, four million for a large property that could maintain a community. And these type of investors, I think are, it's a good opportunity for them because they'll come out of it with asset value and they'll make um, interest income during the course of this. We all just need to bear in mind though that I think the interest rate is gonna go up very high. You know, I think it's gonna be uh, scary high, which is why you wanna try and minimize debt as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Because I think even if the bank doesn't foreclose on you, if the interest rate rate goes up to eight, nine, 10%, a lot of people might not be able to sustain that anyway and would have to sell the house one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I really think that that's a marvelous concept of the family banking or in a circle of people that you trust in your community mm-hmm. that you know you could extend some money to. So it's a win-win. And yeah. you're keeping the untrustworthy party, which at this point is the bank and the government yeah. out of the equation. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. I think that that could gain traction. And yeah. it would be lovely to somehow match these parties. I, I guess it's really word of mouth for people saying, listen, I'd like to clear my debt with the bank, pay my penalty and get out of my mortgage now. Yeah. Because as you've told me before, in the fine print, they can call your mortgage. They yeah. can act as though it's a line of credit and yeah. give you a week or two notice. It's in yeah, the fine man. print. Yeah. Uh, so Uh, to maybe shut down your mortgage prematurely with the bank, pay the penalty and refinance with a friend that you trust. And then it allows that friend to have their money stored in a place that, you know, is making a better return than what the bank is offering. So it's a win-win. It really. And I think that as long as you don't do it at a commercial level, because if you do, then you've got to set it up as a business, then you'll need a banking license and, and you won't get one. So, you know, that, that blocks the whole thing. But as long as it's it's a private arrangement, but I think that there's a future in this, in that mm-hmm. the people on this side of the fence or on this side of the bell curve, however you want to describe them, are going to need those 6 million people, are going to need the setting up of a whole new economic infrastructure, mm-hmm. a new healthcare system, new media, new education. And so there will be huge investment opportunities to set up the infrastructure of that for those that have the money to do it, mm-hmm. because the banks won't be financing any of that. Um, so again, I look at this as almost like a, a brand new nation that's come together of 6 million mm-hmm. people starting from scratch. What do we need to do? And how can we do it? And how do we pool our resources, almost like a national cooperative Mm -hmm. to build this better world that we see. And I think that if we can be successful over the next couple of years with this type of attitude, imagine the world that we could build in the long term. And I think this is our training ground for actually just weeding corruption out of these huge uh, systems and institutions and industries. You know, maybe we really can set up a, a viable shadow system here it's yes no it's a very it's a it's a it's a wonderful model and there's a a lot of hope in it uh one last question and then i'll let you go is i'm hearing horrific stories of people having difficulty getting their money out of institutions 
uh, and it's escalating. I'm hearing more of these stories every day where the banks will not give them their money or they'll, they, they have such tiny sums that they're restricted to withdrawing on a daily or weekly basis. Yeah. What recourse does someone, does a depositor have who really wants to get out their money and is being limited by the institution? What can they do? Um, and I know we've spoken about this before. There's not a lot that one can do because I always give advice as best as I can to operate within, within the letter of the law. Um, and, you know, I think that as restrictions are put in place, we've got to try and work around that and, and try not to get caught working around the regulations or, or the law, because I think then you get yourself into much greater, greater trouble. And there's no way that I think any of us would ever advocate for that sort of thing, even if those regulations are fundamentally unjust, which I think is the situation that we're seeing now with this restriction. The pinch of the restriction is being felt with people trying to move assets outside of Canada. So if you want to transfer it from one account to an international account offshore, that seems to be um, where the, the main focus is. But we know that even just moving it um, to cash, for instance, or, or making sort of large moves to different accounts and that sort of thing is also being questioned. I would always just say, try and move whatever you can as um, religiously and as regularly as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so what if you limit it, just work on, on the maximum limit that you can get out and just keep working on, on, on that and move as much as you can. Um, those restrictions will definitely then probably get worse, I think, going forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But try and move as much as you can. I think that moving it out into cash locally might be an idea, and then you buy assets, but getting it out of the country is, is a problem. And I think the window for for large um, transfers out of the country is probably pretty much closed already, actually. Um, and, and unfortunately, there are ways of getting it out. But, you know, I, I think you've got to, you've got to try and work within the, the legal framework, no matter how questionable that framework, um, or how unjust that, that framework happens to be, mm -hmm. um, which mm -hmm. I know is probably not very helpful advice. In fact, it's not advice at all. So what can I say? <laughs> well, I think that I'm seeing people have success, who go into the banks and say, listen, I'm, I'm moving to the States, I'm going yeah. to be buying a house, I need an account. And then yeah. they're being, they're, they're able to set up an account and they're not needing to show evidence of the deal that they're putting together in the US. So that seems to be a method that's working right now for people. Yeah. So I'm urging people to do that. And um, I'm suggesting that people do get a US account set up because it's a very useful international account to have. And yeah. then you can start funneling the money out. But the difficulty right now is actually getting it out. Yeah. But if you go high enough to you know, the supervisor or uh, the bank manager, often if you the squeaky wheel, you, mm. you actually can get some traction. But yeah. if you're submissive and, and meek, they bully you and, and this is your money it's 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 it really is startling to think these are yeah. this is your money on deposit and they're now telling you what you can and cannot do with it yeah and i i've also recommended to people going back quite a long ways actually you know over the last couple of years is try and build a relationship with your bank manager get to know them Take every opportunity to chat to them, tell them what's happening in your business or your personal life, you know, the sort of stuff that they want to know as a good mm -hmm. client. But mm -hmm. the more you can interact and and almost establish more of a, a sort of friendship, um, mm -hmm. 
not that I'm suggesting that, you know, you have to be, you know, close buddies with everybody out there, but the more you can have a trusting relationship and the bank manager knows you, then when you go and say, look, this is what I'm thinking of doing, this is where I'm going, they're going to be more inclined to, to back you because mm -hmm. the, the bank is all about uh, risk and risk analysis. So they're always judging you in, in whatever you do. You know, you might be late on one credit card payment and that that's on the record for an awfully long time mm -hmm. because it's all about judging risk. So if they know you, if you pop in fairly frequently, if you get to know the tellers, you know, at, at the bank and, and become known, I think that that's always a good idea because you never know when you might need them. Yeah, and they, absolutely always hold more power than, than we, we, we realize. Yes. And I do think that the, the smaller banks, it's easier to have that relationship yeah. because the ethos of yeah. the client is first and the relationship. I think the yeah. larger banks, the horror stories that I'm hearing right now are not the credit unions. I'm yeah. hearing the horror stories from the big banks and, yeah. you know, and, and some of the sense. larger credit unions that have gone national. Those are the yeah. ones that are bullying the clients right now. I haven't heard anything from the credit unions yet. And that's, that stands to reason because they are terrified of losing their government business because that will be a life and death issue for a lot of those big charter banks. Mm -hmm. they, they make much more money from the government than they do from all of us combined. So mm -hmm. they will do whatever they, they told or even as suggested. I mean, when, they, when the banks rushed to mandate um, the, the vaccine status of all their staff, there was no instruction from the government to do that. They, they just said, you know, I think this is a critical industry and you should do this. And within 48 hours, they were busy doing it yeah. because it's about being seen to be compliant to their biggest customer. Mm -hmm. And it really comes down, this is a curse of capitalism because everybody becomes um, compelled for, for the profit. You know, a lot of these, these banks are publicly owned. It's all about return to the shareholders, you know, and, and we become slaves to money. Money becomes the new God. And I think now we are seeing that God turn against us. And it's never a good thing to have a God against you. But I think that, you know, money, they say money is the root of all evil. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It depends how you interpret that. But it's certainly a powerful tool that is being turned into a weapon against us, I think. Absolutely. Well, Alan, as always, your insight is much appreciated. So, Alan Prof, thank you so much for your time today. Thank and, you for having um, me. I, I think very wise words and, and great insight today. So thank you. Thanks very much.